Section 29 of Lives of the Ancient Philosophers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lives of the Ancient Philosophers by Francois Fenelon. Epicurus, Part 1. Epicurus. Born the third year of the 109th Olympiad. Died the second of the 127th, aged 72 years. Epicurus, of the family of the Philaides, was born at Athens toward the 109th Olympiad. From the age of 14, he applied himself to the study of philosophy. He studied some time at Samos under Pamphilus, the Platonist, but he never admired his doctrines. He therefore withdrew himself from his school and did not attach himself to any other master. It is said that he taught grammar, but in a short time he became disgusted with this also. He read with much pleasure the works of Democritus, which assisted him in composing the system he afterwards formed. At the age of 32, he taught philosophy at Mytilene, and then at Lampascus. After five years, he returned to Athens, where he instituted a new sect. He purchased a beautiful garden, which he cultivated himself. It was there he established his school, and led a calm and quiet life with his disciples, whom he instructed whilst they were walking and at work and he made them repeat by heart the precepts which he gave them. People came from all parts of Greece to have the pleasure of conversing with him and contemplating him in his solitude. Epicurus possessed a great sincerity and candor of disposition. He was mild and affable to everybody, and had so affectionate and strong a feeling for his relations and for his friends that he consulted only their happiness and devoted all he possessed to them. He expressly commanded his disciples to have compassion for their slaves. He treated his own with peculiar humanity. He allowed them to study and took the trouble to instruct them himself along with his own disciples. Epicurus never took any other nourishment than bread and water or the fruit and vegetables which grew in his garden. He said sometimes to his attendants, bring me a little milk and cheese in order that I may have a treat. Such, says Laertius, was the life of him who had been represented as a voluptuary. Cicero, in his Tusculan questions, exclaims, Ah, with how little Epicurus contended himself. The disciples of Epicurus imitated the frugality and other virtues of their master. They, like himself, lived on fruit and vegetables. Some took occasionally a little wine, but others never drank anything but water. Epicurus did not wish them to have a common purse, like the disciples of Pythagoras, because, said he, it is rather a mark of distrust amongst themselves than of a perfect union. He believed there was nothing more noble than the study of philosophy, that young men could not begin it too soon, and that old ones ought never to relinquish it, since the object of it was to live a happy life, consequently everybody must be anxious to embrace it. The felicity spoken of by philosophers he maintained to be a natural one, that is to say, a state of happiness at which it is possible to arrive in this life by employing a reason with which nature has gifted us. Epicurus thought it consisted not in sensual pleasure, but in tranquility of mind and bodily health. He had no other idea of supreme good than possessing these two blessings at the same time. He reasoned that virtue is the most powerful means of rendering life happy because there is nothing more desirable than to live wisely and according to the rules of honesty, to have in oneself no cause of reproach, to be guilty of no crime, to injure nobody, 
to do as much good as it is possible, and, in short, not to fail in any of the duties of life. He infers from this that only the good can be happy, and that virtue is inseparable from tranquility. He was never tired of praising sobriety and continence, which powerfully tended to preserve in the mind a settled calm, to ensure bodily health, and even to repair it when it has been once weakened. We ought, said he, to accustom ourselves to be satisfied with a little. It is the greatest wealth that can ever be acquired. The most common foods affords as much pleasure when there is absolute hunger as the most delicious meats. People are always better when they live simply. The head is never disordered, the mind is free, and there is then always a capability to search after truth and to consider the reason by which we are induced to prefer one action to another. He showed, in short, that recreations which are occasionally enjoyed are much more relished and the reverses of fortune much more easily endured by persons who know how to be contented with the little that nature requires than by those who are accustomed to live luxuriously and magnificently. We cannot, he would add, too carefully avoid that kind of debauchery which pollutes the body and brutifies the mind. However desirable pleasure may appear in itself, we ought to fly from it when the evils in its train exceed the satisfaction which results from it. And in the same manner, it is better to suffer anything unpleasant if it be sure to be recompensed by a good yet more considerable. He maintained, in opposition to the cynics, that indolence was positive pleasure and that the pleasures of the mind were much more actual than those of the body. For, said he, the body feels only the present pain or pleasure, whereas the mind feels also the past and the future. He believed that the soul is corporal because it acts upon the body and participates in all its joys and sorrows, wakes us in an instant from a sound sleep, and even makes us change color according to its own varying emotions. He holds that unless the soul were corporal, it could not possibly have any connection with the body. For only matters can be touched or touch. He imagined the soul to be nothing more than a coat of matter thinly spread over the whole of the body, of which it constituted a part, as much connected with it as the foot, the hand, or the head. Hence, he concludes that it is destroyed by death, that it is dissipated like a vapor, and that it retains no consciousness or feeling any more than the body, that consequently death is not to be feared, since it is no ill, either good or evil consisting entirely in consciousness. Death, therefore, being a privation of all consciousness, is a thing which in no way concerns us, since we can never have anything in common with it, as whilst we are, it is not." and when it is, we are not. When a man is in the world, it is indeed very natural for him to wish to remain as long as he finds pleasure in it, but he ought to feel no more reluctance in leaving it than at rising from table after making a hearty dinner. He said that few people knew how to use life properly, that every man, despising the present moment, looked to some future good, whence he was to derive his happiness, and was generally surprised by death before he had time to accomplish half his schemes, and that to this procrastination of felicity was owing to the misery of human life, that therefore nothing was more proper than to enjoy the present moment without anticipating the future, and that we ought not estimate the happiness of life by the number of years we may remain upon the earth, but solely by the enjoyments that may have fallen to our share. 
A short and agreeable life, said he, is much more desirable than a long and dull one. It is delicacies we look for at an elegant entertainment, and not for a great number of ill-dressed dishes. If we acknowledge that after death we shall forever be deprived of enjoyments, we must recollect also that we shall no longer entertain a desire to possess them, any more than we had before we were born. He deemed it a great weakness to be afraid of the representations that were made of the infernal regions, showing that the punishments of Tantalus, Sisyphus, Titurus, and the Danaids were ingenious allegories invented to exemplify the passions and anxieties with which men are tormented in this world, and that it was the business of a wise man to get rid of all such dreads which only served to disturb the enjoyment and tranquility of life. He made liberty to consist in complete indifference. He rejected fatalism and looked upon the art of divination as a frivolous thing, it being impossible to know future events, since they are regulated by human caprice and do not spring out of necessary causes. Epicurus always spoke in the sublimest terms of the divinity and wished everyone to entertain on that subject sentiments equally elevated as his own. He expressly forbade any of his disciples to attribute to the supreme being anything unworthy of immortality and perfect happiness, and remarked that the really impious man was not he who disbelieved in the gods, who were held in all adoration by the vulgar, but he who fell in all the errors respecting them that the vulgar entertained. He inculcated that our devotion was due to the divinity on account of his perfections, and that we ought to render it to him on that consideration alone, and not from fear of punishment or hope of reward. He blamed the superstitions which only served to abuse the credulity of the vulgar and were often made a cloak for the most iniquitous practices. The religion of his country did not consider the gods as exempt from human frailties, but he regarded them as happy beings residing in delightful places where neither wind nor rain nor sorrow ever came and where air was always serene, the light always brilliant, and the consciousness of their own felicity was their sole and sufficient occupation. He believed them to be entirely free from everything that annoys and embarrasses mortals, and that, wholly independent of us for their happiness, they could not possibly be affected either by our good or bad actions, with which, indeed, he maintained they could not any way interfere without involving their own felicity. Hence, he deemed all invocations prayers, and sacrifices superfluous, and that there was nothing meritorious in having recourse to the gods and prostrating ourselves before their altar, altars in all our emergencies, for that we ought to submit to everything which comes to pass with an equal and unruffled mind. He adds that men do not derive their ideas of the gods from reason, and that the fear which seems intuitive in us of these tranquil beings originates often in the mere phantoms of our own imagination, which presents gigantic and hideous forms to us in our dreams. Sometimes these forms appear to threaten us, in imperious and haughty tones suited to their majestic mien. We see them perform the most astonishing things, apparently at their pleasure. And as there is no place in which these phantoms do not appear, and as there are many wonderful effects of which the causes appear to be unknown, Persons who are unenlightened, contemplating the sun, the moon, the stars, and the regularity of their movements, immediately imagine these nocturnal specters to be eternal and omnipotent beings. They assign to them the middle of the firmament for their abode, because it is from there that they see the thunder, lightning, rain, hail, and snow proceed. 
they make these beings preside over the conduct of this admirable machine of the world and attribute to them in general all the effects of which the causes lie hidden hence says he arise the immense number of altars that are to be found in all parts of the world and he believes that the worship of which is offered up to the gods has no other origin than these groundless fears lucretius agreeably to the doctrines of epicurus says in speaking of the delightful dwelling of the gods that we are not to suppose that there exists any resemblance between them and the palaces that we see on earth that the gods being of so fine a material that they do not come under the cognizance of our senses and that we can scarcely even form any idea of them the places which they inhabit must of necessity be proportioned to the subtlety of their nature all philosophers agree that according to the ordinary course of nature nothing can be produced from nothing and that not anything can be reduced to nothing we are taught by experience that from the ruins of one body other bodies are produced so that consequently they must have one common origin and it is in this common origin that is called the primitive matter respecting this primitive matter a variety of opinions have been entertained epicurus believed it to consist of atoms that is to say of small invisible corpuscles of which he says all things are composed besides atoms he emits another principle namely a vacuum or a void he does not however consider it as a principle in the composition of bodies he admits it only as it connected with motion for he says if there were not a small empty space spread throughout nature there would be no such thing as motion the whole mass of matter would remain perpetually pressed together like a rock and consequently would never be susceptible of any reproduction he maintains that these atoms have existed for all eternity that their forms though finite are varied to a degree which is beyond our comprehension and that each distinct form is still a combination of an almost infinite number of atoms he attributed their motion to their own weight that they unite by the force of collision that the various combinations in which they arrange themselves produce the various effects which we see in nature that consequently all those effects were attributable to chance alone which had caused the fortuitous assemblage of a certain number of atoms in a certain form these atoms he compared to the letters of the alphabet which form different words accordingly as they may be differently arranged thus for instance the words r and ear although composed of the same letters are of quite different significations that in consequence of their different arrangement and in the same manner atoms form very different bodies according to the different forms and proportions in which they might be arranged nevertheless he maintained that all sorts of atoms are not alike proper for the composition of all sorts of bodies for instance it appears highly probable that those atoms which compose a fleece of wool are not equally fit to compose a diamond as we may see many words which are formed without one letter among them in common he imagined these small bodies to be in perpetual motion that therefore nothing in nature remained long in the same state that some diminished whilst other augmented from the fragments of those that were thus diminished some decayed while others acquired fresh vigor hence that the duration of everything in the universe is only temporary yet as in proportions that one body wastes the atoms which are detached from it combine with others and form another body altogether different from that to which they had formerly belonged so nothing can entirely perish though the existence of all things in any given form be only temporary and that though at last everything may seem to disappear yet nothing can ever be utterly lost or annihilated
Epicurus supposed that there had been a period when all atoms were in a state of separation from each other, that by fortuitous combination they at length composed an infinite number of worlds, each of which will perish at the end of a finite period, either by fire, as if the sun were to approach so near the earth as to burn it up, or by some great and terrible shock, which will instantaneously plunge everything into disorder and irretrievably destroy the machinery of the world. In short, that this variety of worlds may be made to perish in a variety of ways, but that from the wreck of each, others will be formed, which will immediately begin to produce new animals. It appears probable from this view of the subject that the very world which we inhabit is only a heap of ruins from some mighty and overwhelming destruction, in proof of which we have only to contemplate the dreadful gulfs which the sea presents, the lofty chain of mountains, and the long ledges of rocks, some of which lie horizontally, others rise perpendicularly, others are thrown across. Witness also the inequalities even in the bowels of the earth, the subterranean rivers, lakes, and caverns which they contain, and also the still greater inequalities to be found on its face, intersected as it is with seas, lakes, straits, islands, and mountains. Epicurus supposes the universe to be infinite, that this grand whole has neither center nor boundaries, and that from whatever imaginary point we may diverge, there is an infinite space to traverse, of which it is impossible ever to arrive at the end. He considered it mere weakness and vanity to imagine that the gods had framed this world for the sake of the human race. It is not very likely, said he, that after remaining so long in a state of tranquility, they should think of changing their original mode of life for a different one. It is moreover fair to infer, by the imperfections which may be discovered in it, that this world cannot be the production of the gods. End of section 29